0: Turn uh, with me, please, to Jonah chapter 4. If you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, you'll find this on page 928. I'm reluctant to describe this evening's uh, sermon as the fourth in a series of four, unless uh, you can have an elastic series, because it has been uh, quite a time between each of these uh, sermons. Uh, Jonah uh, chapter 1 speaks of the prodigal prophet. He was commissioned by God to go to Nineveh, preach a message of judgment, and he opted to run away from God. Indeed, uh, he demonstrated the the stubborn depths of his rebellion by saying, actually, I would rather be thrown into the sea to drown than take this message uh, to Nineveh. In chapter 2, we find uh, Jonah in God's underwater classroom. He is in the belly of a great fish, and there we explored some of the evidences of a genuine repentance in the heart of uh, Jonah. In chapter 3, he is recommissioned by God to go to Nineveh with the same message, And as he begins to preach, uh, quite remarkably, he finds himself caught up in what must be one of the most significant spiritual awakenings recorded in the whole of Scripture. It is a remarkable event. From the least to the greatest, from the street sweeper to the king, there is a response to the preaching of the prophet, uh, and it is simply mind-blowing as God enters into that situation. This brings us up to uh, chapter 4, and I must confess, after we uh, preached in chapter 2, a number of folks here said, we don't understand chapter 4 in the light of what you said if Jonah really repented, if if there was such a spiritual transformation in the man, how come we've got chapter 4? Well, uh, let's try and explore that question uh, this evening. Chapter 4 and verse 1, "'But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live." The Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine. And made it grow up over Jonah and gave him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do. He said, I am am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city?" Jonah chapter 4 does not provide us with a happy ever after ending. Uh, for many, it forms a colossal anticlimax. climax. Uh, indeed, it runs across the grain of expectation. We might expect the prophet who had been instrumental under God in one of the greatest recorded revivals in Scripture, to be dancing a jig of delight. What a privilege to be involved in this work of God. But instead, we find him fuming in his DIY judgment observation shelter. He wants Nineveh's revival to implode. Jonah, having witnessed God at work, did not like what he saw. He wanted to see sheets of fire poured down from heaven, not floods of grace and mercy. God had failed to work according to his expectations. And whenever we find ourselves in that position, then we need to re-examine those expectations and the passion that shapes them. There are three things I want us to still look at this evening. Uh, Jonah's response to the revival. Uh, secondly, uh, Jonah's repentance as it's queried by many, and thirdly, God's reaction uh, to Jonah. I want to spend the bulk of our time uh, perhaps unpacking that. Jonah's response to revival. And I want to suggest, first of all, that Jonah's covenant responsibilities or sensibilities were shaken to the core. We read in verse 1 that Jonah was exceedingly displeased and angry. By what? Oh, the outpouring of God's Spirit on heathen Nineveh. That was offensive to him. It contradicted, I want to suggest to you, his covenant understanding. Our passage highlights Jonah's conscious covenant awareness first in the constant use of the covenant name for God, Yahweh, translated capital L-O-R-D in uh, most modern translations, and uh, Sinclair explained the significance of that last Sunday uh, evening. Secondly, his description of God in verse 2 clearly draws upon God's uh, covenant self-disclosure of His character at Sinai in Exodus 34 and verse 6. Let me read. And God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, "'The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I think there is good cause for believing that here is a passage that Jonah had been thinking about. He almost replicates that in verse uh, 2. God's self-disclosure, the self-disclosure of the covenant God at the foot of Mount Sinai. Thirdly, Jonah's reference to his homeland in verse 2 hints at the fact that if anyone needed to experience the reviving work of God's Spirit, it was God's own covenant people back home, for they were in a mess. The idolatry of his own people must have figured constantly in Jonah's prayer meetings back home. Israel at that time was an idolatrous nation. Did it seem manifestly unfair to Jonah that mercy was being poured out on this heathen people when the covenant people back home we're in such great need. Secondly, in these verses, we find that Jonah's practical atheism is exposed. Now, we need to ask, how is it possible to have such a comprehensive understanding of the doctrine of God, such as Jonah displays in verse 2, and yet to behave so unmercifully. If, according to Jesus, one penitent can cause rejoicing in heaven, what about the repentance of hundreds of thousands? Nineveh's repentance, which delighted God's heart, found no reciprocal delight in Jonah. Indeed, God's delight becomes Jonah's disgust. Jonah's theology was orthodox, but his practice was deviant. And and there is a major disconnect here. When God originally revealed His character to His covenant people at Sinai, it was with the expectation that he would find a reflection of his character in his people's lives. Remember the words, be holy for I am holy. This is what I am like. This is what I want you to be like. Jesus shared, you will remember, that expectation with his followers in Luke 7 and 26. Be merciful, he says, just as your heavenly Father is merciful. In other words, mirror. Reflect the character of God and so demonstrate by your behavior that you are God's child. But There is no reflection of mercy in Jonah's heart. In the core of his being, he is blazing mad. The point is, a practical atheist can score full marks in the doctrine of God exam and yet fail miserably in practice. He can recite the creed. He can answer all of the questions in the catechism. But it's not knowing facts about God. It's not even believing certain facts about God that's important. But allowing those facts to transform the innermost fabric of our lives that's not happening here with Jonah. Thirdly, I want you to notice that Jonah moves from the center to the periphery of God's work. Verse 5, without a moment's hesitation, Jonah left his God-appointed post where he could have been, think on this, where he could have been discipling new believers and instead withdrew to the outskirts of the city. These vulnerable new converts had no access to God's Word. They had no oral tradition on which to draw. They had no mature believers to instruct them in their newfound faith. By way of contrast, Think of what happened after Pentecost, the Pentecost revival. And despite the attendant dangers, the apostles remained in Jerusalem to instruct those who had come to faith. In Acts 2 and 42, we read that they, that is the crowd who had responded to the gospel, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Along with the apostles, they were part of uh, this new community, God-breathed, made-alive community. What did Jonah do? Well, he withdrew his service. He opted to become a mere spectator in his judgment observation post. Today, the people of God, in some situations, continue to move from the center to the periphery of God's work when it fails to meet with their expectations. Some even perversely wish that the work of God would fail. They would rather see it fail Than track along their planned course for God to work. And you might think that could never happen. Let me tell you, I have witnessed that happen on a number of occasions where the people of God have, in essence, said, We would like to see this work fail because it's not developing according to the way we think God should work. Well then, uh, what are we going to do with Jonah? Let's, let's return to the question uh, I mentioned earlier, where Jonah's repentance in chapter 2 was queried, uh, wasn't a real uh, work of grace in his heart. Uh, People say it's the same old Jonah, is it not, that we saw in chapter 1. No spiritual transformation could have taken place. Uh, Nothing significant happened in the belly of that great fish, really. Uh, That's a very dangerous conclusion to draw, and it does, I think, merit brief comment before we move on. First of all, it wrongly assumes that a crisis experience guarantees a lasting victory over sin. You see, there are those who would argue if Jonah's repentance in the belly of the great fish was genuine, then surely he could say and could argue and should argue, I am quite safe. After that profound spiritual experience, there is no chance of me ever letting God down again. Never happen." Occasionally, that kind of teaching surfaces, claiming all the Christian needs is a one-off crisis experience of full surrender or whatever, to advance him or her to some higher spiritual plane where they are free from the temptation to sin. And, and that can be very appealing, not least to very young Christians, but it contradicts the teaching of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and come after me. Jonah's dramatic spiritual experience in chapter 2 did not render him immune from future failure. And his failure can be our failure if we don't learn to battle with sin and with self on a daily basis. Don't think that you can relax because of some past glorious experience of God. I don't care how glorious. You can't relax because of that. Secondly, to question the genuineness of Jonah's repentance in chapter 2 fails, I believe, to grasp the depths of the depravity of the human heart. What we find in chapter 4 is that new depths of sin are being uncovered. The human heart is like uh, an onion. No sooner do you peel back Uh, one sinful layer, and another presents itself to you. That squares, doesn't it, with the experience of the Apostle Paul, whose estimate of his spiritual condition towards the end of his ministry was that uh, my heart doesn't improve with age. He says, uh, I am the chief of sinners. Thirdly, to question the genuineness of Jonah's earlier Repentance fails to grasp the true nature of repentance itself. You see, it's not a one off act. I've lost track of the number of campfire testimonies uh, that I've heard that have described repentance in the historic past as if it's. A one-off act that has secured entry into the kingdom of God. Ten years ago, I confessed my sins. I repented of my sins. One-off act. Finishes there. Uh, We've been thinking a lot about Martin Luther's anniversary of late, have we not? I wonder if you're aware of what the first thesis was of the 95 that he nailed to the door of Wittenberg uh, cathedral. Let me read it to you. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is an ongoing response to the daily resurgence of old sins and the discovery of new ones. Jonah is to learn uh, exactly that. Well, what are we going to say about God's uh, reaction to all of this? Uh, Perhaps by way of introduction, notice that Jonah's uh, response in chapter 4 verse 2 is significantly different from his rebellion in chapter 1 verse 3, where Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord hands over his ears, la-la-la-la-la-la-la, not listening. In verse 2, he runs into the presence of God in prayer. Incidentally, this is the safest place to vent your emotions. Unpack them in the presence of God rather than in the public square. God values honesty it leads to rehabilitation, you know. The structure of God's response to Jonah is, I believe, enlightening. He poses, if you like, two uh, bookend questions which stand on either side of a real-life parable starring Jonah as the unwitting actor. The parable is designed to answer God's questions. Have you any right to be angry? The question is first asked with reference to the repentant city of Nineveh, verse 4, where God had worked in reviving power and which was not destroyed. The second question was asked after the plant which gave Jonah such comfort and shelter was destroyed. Verse 9, Let's set the scene. The DIY observation post from where Jonah still hoped to view the destruction of Nineveh had no air conditioning. Now, you need to live in the Middle East to grasp the torment which desert heat can cause. Desert heat And in addition, the strong wind, hot wind that God sent. During our time in Iran, dozens of inhabitants of the city of Abadan died of heat exhaustion. Now, in Scotland, we can't possibly imagine that, can we? But dozens died of heat exhaustion. Well, God provided a quick growing plant to shelter Jonah. And he became very attached to this plant. That's obvious from the text. Whether he talked to it or not, we're not sure. It was certainly a source of great comfort and happiness. Verse 6. Here's something that's actually made Jonah happy. It's a plant. Jonah awoke the next day to discover the plant destroyed its roots eaten by God's worm. How could God allow the destruction of his pet? comfort the object of his love. Jonah's happiness withered in the vine, excuse the pun, uh, to be replaced by fury. And when God questioned Jonah about his anger, his reply echoes that of verse 3. He says, I'm angry enough to die. I want to die. That's how passionate he felt about having his precious plant taken from him. Well, the plant parable becomes a passion litmus test, and there are three things here worthy of note. First of all, Jonah's passion is misplaced. The parable highlights a plants versus people scenario. Jonah and contemporary eco-warriors at savethedesertplants.com share a misplaced priority. They passionately want to protect one particular species while maintaining a total disregard for others. I read some time ago of an eco-warrior whose mission was to save lab rats. But she also wanted to abort her unborn child. Now, the inconsistency there is is just unbelievable, but true. Now, the 120,000 figure mentioned in verse 11 could refer to young children who don't know their right hand from their left. If so, then a total similar, I suppose, to the whole population of Glasgow, is in view. How could Jonah become enraged when his little pet plant was destroyed and yet remain strangely unmoved at the prospect of the destruction of a vast city? God could well ask, if you're angry enough to die because your pet plant is dead, Should you not be prepared to live for the people in Nineveh who actually need you? Secondly, Jonah's passion is distorted. Look at what God says in verse 10. You didn't tend the plant nor make it grow. In other words, I was the one who invested in it. It wasn't your plant, it was my plant so that the shade it gave and the comfort it provided was mine to give or remove. All you did was benefit from my provision. You see, God deserved gratitude for the comfort and shade which the plant provided, but Jonah took both the gift of care and the God who provided it for granted. Indeed, Jonah reflects a blindness towards God's care that was endemic among His people. Do you remember how Isaiah 5-1 following describes God's caring provision for His vineyard Israel? And it concludes with a heart-wrenching question what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for you? I've cared and cared and cared. You see, it wasn't so much a desert plant that Jonah loved, nor the God who provided it, but the shade and the comfort that the plant provided place Jonah's passion under a microscope and see a man who is now totally self-centered and self-deserved. Where's my shade? Where's my shade? It's all about him, certainly not about God or his grace or his purposes, Now the significance of this selfish self centeredness becomes even more apparent in our third point. Jonah's passion was ill informed. Did Jonah think that by becoming an instrument in the spiritual awakening of a foreign power that he was stepping beyond the boundary of God's covenant? a view that would certainly reflect the closed-shop mentality of Israel. But you see, God's covenant people should have been showcasing God's glory and drawing the nation's Godward. Instead, they drew up the drawbridge on those they considered to be their religious inferiors. Now, given that background of cultural and theological conditioning, how might Jonah be greeted on his return to Israel? Where have you been, Jonah? Oh, I was doing a bit of uh, preaching in Nineveh. And, And how did that go? Oh, tens of thousands of people repented of their sin and began to worship the true and the living God. Can you imagine, Jonah, Uh, replaying that scenario over and over and over in his mind. He'd be branded an enemy sympathizer, a traitor of the covenant. God's blessing is for God's people. Think just for a moment of the rough time given to Peter when the early church heard he'd preach the gospel in a Gentile home. Oh, Peter, how could you? The Jewish church was incandescent until they received a fuller explanation of all that had been going on. Now, this begs the question, was Jonah more concerned about his reputation as being perceived as the prophet who crossed the covenant picket line than with one who had been involved in the substantive outpouring of the mercy of God upon the lost. Israel's view, and by default, Jonah's view of the covenant made the awakening in Nineveh a profoundly unsettling affair. But the amazing irony here is that Jonah did not betray the covenant. Indeed, He fulfilled the covenant purpose of God. God's plan of salvation was never intended to stop at the boundaries of Israel. When God established His covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 3, He said, through you shall all the nations, all the nations of the earth be blessed. So, far from being a religious deviant, Jonah had fulfilled God's covenant mandate. This book shatters the religious closed-shop mentality that prevailed, and it demonstrates that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Any passion that seeks to narrow the wideness of God's mercy or displace the universal offer of the gospel is misplaced, distorted, and ill-informed. At a meeting of Baptist churchmen held in the late 1700s, William Carey, a newly ordained minister, began to argue passionately in favor of overseas mission. And he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. More than 2,000 years after Jonah, that old minister was raising the same drawbridge to hinder God's mandate to reach the lost. He was a man with a misplaced passion. Is our passion misplaced? Let me ask, What are you and I really, really passionate about? Family, career, music, film, cars, golf, gardening, crafts, or hobbies? The list goes on. Would you go to London to see an art exhibition, but not cross the road to speak to someone about Jesus? When when we walk through the streets of Dundee, what do we see? Is it a a growing ethnic diversity, an uneven distribution of wealth, a variety of health problems, a range of fashion? Or do we see people who are genuinely in need of Christ? Does the Spirit of Christ who wept over Jerusalem, constrain us to mirror his concern? Or do we raise the drawbridge on certain people, certain places? Let me ask, how committed are we to the work in Charleston? Are they not people for whom Christ died? Let me ask, would we pray for members of ISIS? You know, it's reckoned that there are something in the region of 30 to 60,000 still in Iraq. Would we pray for their conversion? Or are they beyond the pale? Carey's passion wasn't quenched by fear of ridicule. Indeed, before setting out as a missionary to India, he taught a geography uh, class, a little group of children. He taught them a number of things, but uh, he had a geography class in his cobbler shop. And he would point to large areas of his leather globe, And with tears in his eyes, he would say, and they're lost, and they're lost, and they are lost. I wonder, does this book challenge us to review our passion, to dismantle our prejudice, to bury our reputation, to step out of our comfort zone, And empowered by God's Spirit, only that, empowered by God's Spirit, seek after the lost. Let's pray. Our gracious Father under God, as we bow ourselves before you this evening, we confess that there is uh, so much of Jonah in our own life. We thank you that in your grace you pursued him, that you found ways of instructing and challenging him. And we ask that you might do the same in each of our lives, that we may not be among those who raise the drawbridge on other people, groups, or individuals or communities rather see the singular privilege that is ours to share the gospel that we might glory in the mercy and grace of our God. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to sing the hymn, There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea.